Take your Bibles. Let's go back to 2 Samuel. We're in 2 Samuel chapter 2 this morning. 2 Samuel chapter 2. It's wonderful to be gathered together again this week. I pray that you've had a good week as you've sought to follow our Christ. That you are serving him as king. We rejoice to be gathered together to receive his graces to us. Through his word, through prayer, through fellowship with his people. Are you good at being patient? I think for most of us we know the answer to that question, don't we? I am not a naturally patient person. It's hard to wait. Especially when you know that something promised is supposed to happen. Or is supposed to have happened already. It's difficult for children to be patient, and yet often as adults, we struggle in a very similar way, don't we? Maybe on a larger scale with perhaps more important issues in our own minds, but it's still the same internal battle. One current pastor writes of patience, patience is bearing up under difficult circumstances without giving up or giving in to bitterness. Patience means working when gratification is delayed. It means taking what life offers, even if that means suffering, without lashing out. And when you're in a situation that you're troubled over, or when there's a delay or pressure on you, or something's not happening that you want to happen, there's always a temptation to come to the end of your patience. And you may well have lost your patience before you're even aware of it. In our text this morning, we'll see that God rarely accomplishes his work according to our timetable. He doesn't work in our time. And yet we can be assured he is working still. In our text this morning, David's patience in God's promises will be tested again. At this point, God had promised him years ago that he would be the king of Israel. And yet, he's still waiting on God to fulfill that word. But consider just how old this specific promise to give his people a king truly is. All the way back in Genesis 17, God promised to Abraham and Sarah that through their children, God would raise up a nation that would be a blessing to all peoples. And even there, he's promising that one day a king would come through their line. To Abraham, God promises, I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. Of Sarah, God promises in the same chapter, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Later in Genesis 49.10, we read of Jacob's son Judah, the scepter, that ruling object shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Which future king would come from the tribe of Judah? 
Finally, as we heard read this morning, before any king is even ever anointed or in the minds of God's people, somehow it's in the mind and in the mouth of Hannah in her prayer. Did you see it this morning? She said in verse 10, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. How did she know that? Except by the spirit of God guiding her words. With Saul now dead, it finally seems that we're about to see God fulfill this promise. This age old promise let's look at our text in first or second samuel rather chapter two we'll just read beginning in verse one through verse seven this is god's word to us his people after this david inquired of the lord shall i go up into any of the cities of judah and the lord said to him go up David said, to which shall I go up? And he said, to Hebron. So David went up there and his two wives also, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the wife of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him and everyone in his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. When they told David it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul, David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord because you showed this loyalty to Saul, your Lord, and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. And I will do good to you because you have done this thing. Now therefore let your hands be strong and be valiant for Saul, your Lord, is dead. And the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. Let's ask for his help as we look at God's word together. Father in heaven, we come before you expressing our need and our dependence. We need to see and hear your word. We need to see you in its pages. We need to recognize where we are weak, where we are sinful and failing, And where by your grace you will strengthen and encourage us to walk with you anew. Lord, we express our dependence. That is only by your grace, by your word, that we are given life. So may we hear it and receive it and apply it. That we may live as you've intended. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll work through our passage this morning, going scene by scene. There are various scenes in chapter 2. We'll first recognize God's king crowned, then God's king contested, and finally God's people in conflict. Our passage will teach us that God will fulfill his promises to provide his people a king, but it will be in his own timing. So first, God's king crowned. Verse 1 begins with David seeking the Lord's guidance for his next steps. Consider the significance of this seemingly insignificant action or statement. We're not really surprised to read this, are we? And it's easy for us to just breeze right by it. 
But we know based on the contrast between Saul and David that failing to seek God's direction was one of Saul's great downfalls. The narrator is saying David is going to be different. David has already had God's word that he will be king. He could have moved forward without stopping to seek after God. He already knows that God's made him, anointed him king. And yet we read in verse 1, after this, that means the death of Saul and Jonathan, David inquired of the Lord. In these first several verses, David models for us godliness in several ways. First, David is a dependent, submissive king. How often we fail to seek God's face as we move forward in our lives, through our weak through our days, assuming we know exactly how things should be going. And if we just get ourselves ordered, things will go well. Now this may seem like a small point, and yet it makes a massive difference in our lives. David knows what God has said about his kingship, and yet he still carefully seeks God's face, God's specific direction for his life. He's modeling for us a verse we know well. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him. And he will make your paths straight. Matthew Henry writes, He that believes does not make haste. But waits on God's time for the accomplishment of God's promises. Are you regularly expressing your dependence on God as you walk through this life? As you pursue your career or your studies? As you lead your family or care for your children? As you consider changes of direction for your future? What does it say about us when we choose not to pray? When we fail to make it the priority that God's word tells us that it is? Doesn't it reveal a heart of self-reliance? It just slips our mind. But what does that say about us? David's actions here remind us that we should not seek after God only when we're in some kind of trouble. Things are now going well for David. But we're to seek him even when all seems to be going well and in our favor. And remember, even Jesus, the Son of God, who is one with the Father, makes time to pray, to fellowship, to communicate with his Father. So will we choose to seek his direction more faithfully as modeled here? Psalm 37, 5 instructs us, commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. May God help us to make this a greater priority in our lives. Now, in this passage, we're not told specifically how David seeks and receives God's directions. It's very likely that he uses the means that God has provided to him at that time. We've seen that in the past in 1 Samuel. We know that Abiathar the priest is with him, along with these items that come with the priest to discern God's will, the Urim and Thummim. Remember, we're not told specifically how these provide guidance to David, and that's not really the point. 
Instead, the narrator is directing us to see that David is God's king, rightly exercising dependence on him. And that's the principle we're to see modeled and to follow. Now, while this text isn't intended to give us specific direction for seeking God's will, that's not what Old Testament narrative does, we can apply this principle of dependence in our lives. So what means, what tools has God provided his people today for seeking his will? They should be familiar to us. God provides to us his word, prayer, and his people. We don't find specific answers in his word, and sometimes we wish we would. But as we seek God in his word, as we pray, as we seek his direction, God intends to shape the direction of our hearts through his word. So that we would be willing to follow him and prioritize his will above our own. So that when we come to a decision, we aren't saying, I want my way done. My will accomplished. We pray, asking God for wisdom as James instructs us and submitting our plans to him. And we also seek the counsel of godly friends among God's people. Proverbs tells us again and again that there is safety, wisdom in a multitude of counselors. And just as David seeks God's guidance through Abiathar the priest, God has provided shepherds for you and to you that seek to watch for your soul. So seek wise counsel from among God's leaders that he's placed in your life. They're there to help and serve you. Find help with God's direction in your life through the means that God's provided right here within this body. Second, we see that David obeys God's words to him. This righteous king obeys God's word. See, the narrator is careful to demonstrate that David's decision to move from Ziklag north to Hebron is not a pragmatic political move, but an act of obedience to God's word. God is moving and instructing and directing David's steps. So he finally leaves the land of the Philistines for good. God directs David to Hebron. And there we read that David is made king of Judah. I provided for you a map this morning to give you a little bit of an idea of what's happening. Um, as we go, you'll be able to see this. Maybe there's a map in the back of your Bible that you can see. What will happen is we'll see forces from the north, David moving from the south to Hebron, and they'll join there in the middle as we start to see the conflict later on. Hebron is a rich place, rather with rich history. It's where God granted Abram promises for innumerable offspring. A land, a nation, a blessing that would reach to the ends of the earth. As we said, God promised Abraham that through his wife, Sarah, kings of peoples and nations would come from him. And now, finally, almost a thousand years later, David is anointed as king in Hebron. Think about just how long that is before God fulfills that word to Abraham. God is patient. And yet, he's persistent. This is something now of a new beginning. But it's one very much in continuity with and building upon the promises of old. And yet, as we look at it, as we continue our story, we'll see that it's only a partial fulfillment. 
Pastor and author Dale Ralph Davis writes, Here for the first time, Yahweh's chosen king visibly rules on the earth. At Hebron, in this provincial backwater, over only one tribe, only Judah has anointed him and crowned him king. This was no bump along piece of maybe stance. It was under Yahweh's guidance at every point. It's a small beginning, but it is the kingdom of God. Concrete, visible, earthly. And so we read here in these verses that the kingdom of God has for the moment tucked itself away in the hills of Judah. God is at work for his people fulfilling his promises. He does so in his way and in his time. This text teaches us that God doesn't usually start big. He doesn't start the way we expect. He often doesn't start the way we want. He's not allergic to the unimpressive. And he seems drawn to that which man sees as insignificant. Isn't that the story of David? Isn't that seen in Hannah's prayer? He's content to move slowly but surely. May seem today in our own country, in our own world, like God's king is not reigning because his rule seems small, even hidden. But be assured, your God reigns. Just because it doesn't seem like he's at work in obvious ways in our world doesn't mean that he's not. He's actually working in the very same way that he always has. Slowly, steadily, surely. Our God delights to use what we often see as unimpressive or insignificant. And perhaps the book that I've found to be the most encouraging in the last year or so is entitled Memoirs of an Ordinary Pastor. It recounts the story of the ministry of an ordinary pastor through his journal entries over many years of often difficult and seemingly insignificant ministry. This pastor labored in almost obscurity in two or three small towns in Canada over several decades. And while it seems this ordinary pastor has very little fruit to show for his labors, what stands out throughout the book is his faithful persistence in the service of the Lord. Now this man would likely have never been known based on his ministry accomplishments except that his son is the author. D.A. Carson. Through the ordinary faithful ministry of his father, God raised up perhaps one of the most well-known and faithful New Testament scholars of the last century. God calls us to faithfulness even in what might seem like insignificant ministry to our children, at our workplaces, in our neighborhoods. The lesson is to just keep being faithful. Obey his will. Obey his word. Trust that God will work his will in his timing. Place your confidence in what he's doing, not in what you're doing. We may, we may not see the fruit of our labor this side of eternity. But that's not really up to us, is it? Now in verses 4 through 7, we read of David's gracious and merciful entreaty to the men of Jabesh-Gilead. David understood that God intended for him to be king over all Israel and were to notice how he proceeds. He seeks a winsome means to accomplish that purpose. 
One of David's greatest early challenges to establishing his kingdom would be to do so without alienating Saul's supporters. Think of these men. They are men who risk their lives to rescue the dead body of Saul from dishonor. These are Saul's men. They're clearly on team Saul. And yet here in this again, God's king chooses to show favor to his opponents. This is not the normal procedure of a king who takes the throne after his opponent. What normally happens when he's seeking to consolidate power? He wipes out all of those supporters who would stand against him or who might raise up a rebellion against him. But David honors Saul again in this. He speaks words that are true of the good actions of Saul and these men who honor him. A man who saw David as his enemy. He says to them, David says to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, I will do good to you. God's righteous king chooses to do good to those considered his enemies. Can you not see the Spirit pointing us to Jesus Christ? He points to us through David. Jesus chooses to do good to his enemies. Even giving his life as a ransom for our sin on the cross. David is still a sinful man in need of the work of Jesus. Though right now at our study in 2 Samuel, we see David on the rise. We see him as a godly example. We're going to start to see hints of his downfall. And we're not to worship or elevate David to a place he does not deserve and the Bible is not calling us to. We will see in this study that he needed God's grace in his life just as much as Saul. Just as much as every man, woman, and child. This passage is not ultimately revealing to us the goodness of David, but the goodness of our God. And yet in his example, we see David demonstrating patience and grace and godliness. He will not take the throne by personal violence against the house of Saul. And the narrator wants that to be clear over and over again. This is not a man zealous and ambitious for his own power and name. He demonstrates that he is God's righteous king through his prayerful dependence, his willing obedience, and his gracious entreaty to those who would be his natural enemies. So again, David's actions here point us to the greater son of David, Jesus Christ. Just think of how we know this. The Gospel of Matthew introduces us to Jesus and it is, Matthew's Gospel is intended to talk to us about Jesus as king. So think about the very first verse of Matthew's Gospel. It says this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of of Abraham. Do you see how he's pulling that thread then all through the New Testament saying this is the king that's been promised. Through David God is revealing himself to be faithful to his word and to his people through his king. Second, God's king contested. In verse 8 which we'll read in just a moment, we should hear in the background now the movement in the music 
If we were listening to a movie score, this would be that theme that starts showing up that indicates that not all is well. That some as of yet unforeseen turmoil is about to be stirred up. Let's look at verse 8. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. And he made him king over Gilead, and the Asherites, and Jezreel, and Ephraim, and Benjamin, and all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David, just one tribe. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Abner is Saul's cousin and trusted general. He survived somehow the great battle on Mount Gilboa where Saul and Jonathan lose their lives. And now he's going to hand the kingdom over to Saul's son, Ishbosheth. He's not willing to give it over to David, he wants to have his own say in the matter. Ishbosheth is a weak man, a really pathetic man. He's a puppet, and Abner is the puppet master pulling the strings. Saul's last remaining son is weak and passive. No matter what else we see of Abner in this chapter, no matter how reasonable he might seem, here is a man who refuses to submit to God's chosen king. This is not just a man grasping to maintain power. There's more at stake here. There's more going on. He's ultimately a man in defiance of God's will. Notice throughout the rest of the chapter, he's going to initiate the actions of war and conflict and all their devastating consequences. We'll read in chapter 3, verse 9 and verse 18, that he knows exactly what God has promised to David. And yet, he willingly stands in the way. He's selfishly ambitious. There's to be a contrast between how David pursues power and how Abner pursues power. Commentator C.F. Kyle rightly states that the promotion of Ishbosheth as king was not only a continuation of the hostility of Saul towards David but also an open act of rebellion against Jehovah, who had rejected Saul and chosen David as prince over Israel. For even Saul had been convinced of the appointment of David to be his successor upon the throne. Abner Abner knew this well. And the question Abner's resistance then sets before us is, who will be king in our own lives? We, like Abner, know who God says should be king. And yet we, like Abner, resist and want to set up our own king. Will we accept and submit and follow God's king or or will we insist on establishing our own kingdom, our own priorities, our own purposes? Who will be king of your life? God's king is humble, obedient, gracious to his enemies, and yet this king demands our submission. We will either follow or choose to go our own way. And the point of the rest of the chapter, with all its different vignettes and little scenes, 
They're meant to display for us the disastrous results of choosing to follow our own choice of king. It will cost lives. It will be bloody and painful and ugly. And that's to illustrate the way that our choices affect our own lives. So we see number three, God's people in conflict. We'll read this section by section, breaking it into four sections as we move forward. Let's read verses 12 through 16 first. Verse 12 says, Abner the son of Ner and the servants of Ishbosheth the son of Saul went out from Mahat, I don't know how to say that very well, Mahanaim to Gibeon and Joab the son of Zeruiah and the servants of David went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down, the one on the one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. And Abner said to Joab, let the young man arise and compete before us. And Joab said, let them arise. Then they arose and passed over by number, twelve for Benjamin and Ishbosheth the son of Saul. And twelve of the servants of David. And each caught his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side. So they fell down together. Therefore that place was called Helkath Hazurim, which is at Gibeon. And the battle was very fierce that day. And Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. Notice again that Abner initiates the action in this section. He brings his troops down from the north. And Joab Joab brings his men up from the south. They meet at this pool of Gibeon. And Abner suggests this contest, 12 against 12. Now for us, this might seem strange, a, a foolish waste of life, a foolish waste of soldiers. But just as Goliath went out as the representative and champion of the Philistines to meet the champion and representative of the Israelite army. So here, this contest of men is actually intended to limit the bloodshed. The winner of this contest would be declared the victor over the other army. If Abner's men win, then Ishbosheth will be king. If Joab's men win, then David will be king. And yet, as we read, that's not how it ends. The draw breaks out into even greater conflict and skirmish. We read in verse 17 that the battle was very fierce that day. Around this pool, we see the cost of Abner's resistance to God's will. It seems foolish and wasteful and wrong on every level because it is. And yet it's only just the beginning. One author wisely states this outcome is providentially ordained. The Lord is showing that nobody wins when his people engage in open civil war. Next, in verses 18 through 23, we see David, or these men rather, on the run. Verse 18, and the three sons of Zeruiah were there, Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. Now Asahel was swift of foot as a wild gazelle. And Asahel pursued Abner. And as he went, he turned neither to the right hand nor to the left from following Abner. Then Abner looked behind him and said, Is it you, Asahel? And he answered, It is I. Abner said to him, Turn aside to your right hand or to your left and seize one of the young men and take his spoil. But Asahel would not turn aside from following him. 
And Abner said again to Asahel, turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I lift up my face to your brother Joab? But he refused to turn aside. Therefore Abner struck him in the stomach with the butt of his spear, so that the spear came out at his back, and he fell there and died where he was. And all who came to the place where Asahel had fallen and died stood still. In these verses, we have this unusual account of one of Joab's brothers trying to run down Abner on his own. He's trying to secure for David the throne by taking out the general. Abner warns him repeatedly. And he says, why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I lift my face or appear before Joab? Now, perhaps even at some earlier time, Abner and Joab had fought side by side as generals in Saul's army or officers there against the Philistines. Perhaps Abner knew of the violence and aggression of Joab and he didn't want to incite his vengeance. Asahel, certain of his speed, will not be turned away. Abner, as a cagey old soldier, surprises him and runs him through with his spear. And Abner's concern to avoid the wrath and vengeance of Joab foreshadows a future and final conflict between the two men. Now notice at the end of verse 23 that all who came to the place where Asahel had fallen and died stood still. Here lies a mighty man of David. He's listed in the record of all of David's mighty men as one of the greatest. And why is he dead at the hand of another Israelite. It's as if the narrator is calling God's people to pause, to stop and look at this grotesque scene and consider the terrible tragedy of their actions. God's warning us of the dangers of pursuing our own way in rebellion to the true king. What unforeseen tragedies await you if you will not turn from going your own way? Think of that question. What unforeseen tragedies await you? What sin in your life is God's spirit pointing out, even in this moment, issuing you another gracious yet warning to turn from your sin? What terrible consequences would God spare you from if you turn back today? Let's read now, continuing in verse 24. But Joab and Abishai pursued Abner. And as the sun was going down, they came to the hill of Ammah, which lies before Gia, on the way to the wilderness of Gibeon. And the people of Benjamin gathered themselves together behind Abner and became one group and took their stand on the top of a hill. Then Abner called to Joab, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that the end will be bitter? How long will it be before you Tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers. Notice that word. And Joab said, as God lives, if you had not spoken, surely the men would not have given up the pursuit of their brothers until the morning. So Joab blew the trumpet and all the men stopped and pursued Israel no more, nor did they fight any more. The narrative continues as Joab and his army pursue Abner and his men. They finally end up facing off in this final conflict with Abner and his men standing on high ground. 
And in this hypocritical yet poignant speech, Abner asked Joab, how long should this civil war continue? Will we keep killing our brothers? They agree that only death and destruction can come from this civil war. So now we'll read the end. Verse 29. And Abner and his men went all that night through the Arabah. They crossed the Jordan and marching the whole morning, they came to Mahanaim. Joab returned from the pursuit of Abner. And when he gathered all the people together, there were missing from David's servants 19 men besides Asahel. But the servants of David had struck down of Benjamin 360 of Abner's men. They took up Asahel and buried him in the tomb of his father, which was at Bethlehem. And Joab and his men marched all night, and the day broke upon them at Hebron. This account now ends somewhat unresolved. They just walk away from the conflict for now. This underlying conflict, though, will continue all the way up until chapter 5. For now, each army moves back to their homes, but David's men have routed Abner's. In his resistance to God's will, Abner is responsible for the deaths of many of his own soldiers and fellow Israelites. And let's consider the summary statements here in chapter 2. In verse 17, we saw that Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. In verses 30 and 31, there were missing from David's servants 19 men besides Asahel. But the servants of David had struck down of Benjamin. Remember that specifically the tribe of Saul, 360 of Abner's men. What's the point of this record? What we're learning What's summarized in these results of the bloody conflict is that in spite of sinful opposition, God is establishing his righteous king for his people. He's determined to accomplish all his will through his king at just the right time. Our text teaches us that God's righteous king patiently awaits his God to deliver to him the kingdom. It's hard to be patient, isn't it? Put yourself, though, in David's shoes. He was first anointed as king-in-waiting all the way back in 1 Samuel 16. He's probably in his mid-teen years at that point. Would we have expected at that moment such a long and winding and terribly trying road to the throne? For many years, David's anointed but on the run from his own king and father-in-law. He's in constant danger, and yet God was with him, even though very often that doesn't seem to be true based on circumstantial evidence. But David walked by faith, not by sight. He didn't read God's providence through his circumstances. Even after Saul's death, perhaps 20 years after his anointing, when only one tribe recognizes his rightful reign, David still does not take the other tribes by force, even though he could say, this is God's will. He's confident that God's promises are sure. He's faithful to keep each and every word, even though his timing is often his own, and the path he takes us on may be surprising or difficult. Psalm 33, 20 through 22 says, Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because 
we trust in his holy name. That's how you find stability. That's how you find joy in the process, in the waiting, in the trial. You trust. The psalm continues, let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you. In this same spirit, Samuel Rutherford wrote, I now see that duties are ours. Events are the Lord's. When our faith goes to meddle with events and to hold a court, as it were, upon God's providence and begins to say, how will you do this or that? We lose ground. We have nothing to do there. And it is our part to let the Almighty exercise his own office and steer his own helm. And he steers well. We're to trust in the Lord. He'll always steer you well. No matter what circumstance you're facing. No matter how it seems like he's working or not working. He'll always keep his promises. Even when we must wait for him to do so. And we see that most poignantly in the life of Jesus. Almost a century ago in a famous sermon. A pastor recounted the biography of Jesus in this way. He was born in an obscure village. The child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another village where he worked in a car- carpenter shop until he was 30. Then for three years he was an itinerant pre- preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family or owned a home. He didn't go to college. He never visited a big city. He never traveled 200 miles from the place where he was born. He did none of the things that usually accomplish accompany human greatness he had no credentials but himself he was only 33 when the tide of public opinion turned against him all his friends ran away one of them denied him altogether he was turned over to his enemies and went through the mockery of a trial he was nailed to a cross between two thieves and he died alone forsaken even by God himself while he was dying his executioners gambled for his garments the only property he had on the earth when he was dead he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend this sounds like the failure of a man doesn't it and yet 20 centuries have come and gone and still today he is the central figure of the human race all the armies that ever marched all the navies that ever sailed all the parliaments that ever sat all the kings that ever reigned put together have not affected the life of man as much as that one solitary life God accomplishes his will in his timing and in his way no opposition can ever stay his hand Or defeat his will. None can stand against him. As Hannah prayed. Our God reigns. There's none like him. He reigns even when by all appearances. It seems like he does not. Like things are outside of his control. God accomplishes his will in his timing. In spite of all opposition. In the life of his king. And that tells you. 
he will do so in your life as well as you submit to him, trust him, and follow him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we again are grateful for your word. We're grateful for what it reveals to us about your character, of your commitments to your people. Lord, there's none of us who deserve to be loved. We are the enemies that you've pursued. Our hearts wanted its own way. Even as your children now, we're unfaithful at best. We still so often, like sheep, go our own way. And yet, as the great shepherd of the sheep, you pursue us and love us and care for us and through your word and your spirit call us to follow you again. There is truly none like you. So may we worship well in response to the revelation we have seen in your word this morning. May we bow our hearts and wills again. May we confess and repent and turn away from the sin that so easily besets us. May we pursue our King who suffered, who lived in obscurity, who seemed to men's eyes as a failure, one on whom we hid our faces, who was, had no beauty of his own. And yet, in your power, in your wisdom, in your glory, you accomplished all your will. You are a great God. May we follow you with all of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.